think it's time to come together You and I can make a change Maybe we can make a difference Make the world a better place Undivided Hello and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, a show on WEHC and WISE-FM focused on understanding the origins, the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide, and then with that understanding, doing something about it. It's a program where we interview people from all across the country, some of the leading thinkers, writers, and doers who are tackling the rural-urban divide or different pieces of it or other parts of the divide. Today's program, we're really excited that our guest will be Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist. Okay, not really. He's going to be here in spirit, in his words. Me getting Paul Krugman on my show would be sort of like me getting Giada De Laurentiis to sign the copy of the cookbook I have from her. Ain't going to happen. But what we will do is we'll take some of what Paul Krugman has said about rural in a recent op-ed piece in the New York Times, kind of mash that in together with similar kinds of sentiments or analysis from another New York Times writer, Thomas Edsel, as well as Scott Rada, who is a co-host of the popular podcast, The Ethical Lifecast. So here we go. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and today I am taking on Paul Krugman and other heavy-hitting pundits from the liberal progressive side of things to try to refute some of their arguments about rural. We're going to frame this discussion with a piece that Mr. Krugman had published in The Times on the 26th of January of this year. It was titled, Can Anything Be Done to Assuage Rural Rage? Assuage the rage, man. In that article, in that op-ed, Mr. Krugman referenced another piece by his colleague, Thomas Edsel. And in that piece, Thomas Edsel had discussed the work of Kathy Kramer, who's written a book called The Politics of Resentment, and some of the conclusions she drew as to just why so many rural people are, in fact, pretty pissed off. Now, Kathy Kramer, you might recall, was the first guest on Two Worlds, One Country. I was flattered and thrilled to have her. Kathy is a social scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her book, The Politics of Resentment, was based on thousands of hours of discussion with rural people in two dozen different communities across rural Wisconsin over a period of several years, four or five years. I'm not quite sure where Mr. Krugman gets his opinions about rural, but I don't think it's from sitting with groups of country folks around a coffee pot at the local gas station. But in the article of Edsel and in the op-ed that Krugman wrote, they mentioned that Kathy Kramer, quote, attributes rural resentment to perceptions that rural areas are ignored by policymakers, don't get their fair share of resources, and are disrespected by city folks. As it happens, Mr. Krugman said, all three perceptions are largely wrong. Okay? He's saying it's wrong. They're wrong when country people think that rural areas are ignored by policymakers, that we don't have influence, that we lack influence among policymakers, that it's wrong that we don't get our fair share of resources, and it's wrong that city folks and urban elites disrespect us. 
All right, let's take each one of those. I am now shifting to my size. I'm a little bit like, I'm a little bit like my cousin Vinny. You remember my cousin Vinny, where he wasn't quite a lawyer, but he was really good at arguing? Well, that's me. I'm nowhere near a lawyer, but I'm pretty good at arguing. So I'm going to take my arguments to Mr. Krugman and these other prominent elites. Let's start with the first one. It's a mistake that country people think rural areas are ignored by policymakers. And later in the article, he goes on to say, and generally don't have access to influence. In fact, Mr. Krugman says that rural areas get more influence. They have more access than people in the cities. Now, that's based in part, it's based in part on the fact that there are particular programs designed for rural areas. As Mr. Krugman says, quote, the truth is that ever since the New Deal, rural America has received special treatment from policymakers, end of quote. He goes on to cite specific programs within the U.S. Department of Agriculture and other federal agencies. Well, here's the problem with that argument. First, there are plenty of programs designed just for cities, from urban renewal programs as misdesigned and poorly run, as many of them were, to special programs around mass transit and other things that are far more applicable and adaptable for cities. So the fact that rural areas have specifically designed federal programs in no way means that they're getting their fair share of representation. Another argument that's made not in this particular op-ed by Mr. Krugman, but by the folks on the Ethical Life podcast and many other times is that I don't know what these country people are whining about because the fact is, the fact is, they've got way too much representation. Just look at the U.S. Senate. California, what does it have, 50 million people, more than that? Two senators. Montana, what does it have? Seven or 800,000 people? Two senators. We draw from that the conclusion that rural is, in fact, overrepresented dramatically in the U.S. political process. Now, I'm not going to argue that that's fair or valid because, in fact, low population states are dramatically overrepresented in the U.S. Senate. And you can make a similar, though slightly less compelling argument that the Electoral College also can overrepresent those kinds of areas. But here's the fact. Even with that overrepresentation, it does not translate into the concerns, the needs, the priorities of rural people being overrepresented in our politics and political debate. And that's because, in fact, we have this deeply flawed, money-driven political system in which the concerns of everyday people, to quote a study on this matter by Martin Gillens, the concerns of everyday people have been found to have almost no measurable impact on national public policy decisions when they diverge from the priorities of elites. Now, that study was a, an extensive one done back around 2014 or 15. And the authors looked at literally thousands of public policy decisions. And that's what they found. Now, this went across city and country. So, so working folks, ordinary people in cities, as well as in the countryside, if their priorities, if what they wanted on particular policy issues overlapped with the wealthiest and the biggest business interests, then they could get their concerns met. But when they diverged, quote, they had almost no measurable impact. So our money-driven politics means that ordinary people are not well represented in either branch of Congress or in our politics overall. 
Now, as I said, that's true of working folks, the poor, of everyday people, in cities as well as country. But urban people, also poorly represented by our money-driven politics, have had at least some of their social and cultural priorities addressed and met by the political process. And that's because the wealthy elites that drive our policy decisions, as well as our elections, tend to be socially and culturally liberal, but economically conservative. They want to do everything they can to keep their money and keep building their money and wealth and power. But they tend to be socially liberal. And so as a result, at least the everyday person in suburbs and city has had some of their priorities met and addressed. But in the countryside where those social priorities are not so liberal, neither economic nor social issues are being met. So we might have on paper an overrepresentation of rural people in the U.S. Senate and in other ways in our politics, but it's very little practical de facto representation for rural people on the ground. And here's one more way in which rural people feel that they don't have influence, that they don't get their fair share of attention and influence. It's in the agencies and the panels and commissions and boards that agencies set up. So federal laws especially, but many state laws too, are really complicated. seem to get more complex every year. And so when lawmakers agree on something and it becomes, when a bill becomes law, there's still a whole lot of work to do to figure out how to implement it. That's done through agencies, whether it's health agencies, agricultural, environmental, economic, or otherwise. And those agencies have thousands of people who work for them. And in most cases, those people who work for them are doing their very best to both implement the law and represent citizens. But they tend not to come, most of those bureaucrats, most of those regulators, most of those people with the expertise, tend to come overwhelmingly from city and suburb, tend to have been people who've gotten at least a college degree, if not advanced degrees. And so their world, their upbringing, their universe is one that's quite different from the ordinary person in the countryside. And country people feel that. They, they feel that the, the folks coming to them to tell them what they should and shouldn't do in the management of their business or their land or their forests are not like them and don't understand them. And they certainly don't ask them for their opinion. And so again, people feel underrepresented, not overrepresented. And that's extended even further by the fact that the various commissions, the advisory boards, the citizen panels that are set up to get citizen input, genuinely to get citizen input, to the degree they do that for anybody it's going to be much lower for people in the countryside. First, because they're further away. So many of those commissions and advisory boards meet in or near the state capital, and by definition, that's a lot closer to city and suburban people than it is to folks in the countryside. And secondly, because when they set up those commissions, those advisory boards, those panels, they're looking for a diverse set of stakeholders would be the way they'd probably put it. But They're particularly looking for experts, and experts in their definition is going to be people with advanced degrees. It's going to be people with extensive business experience or who run big businesses. It's going to be people with a lot of political experience, much less so farmers, fishermen, small business owners, everyday citizens. So in all these different ways, in spite of overrepresentation in the Senate, country people fairly and reasonably believe that they are, in fact, poorly represented, underrepresented in politics and in decision-making broadly. 
Okay, let's look at the second element of rural rage that Mr. Krugman dismisses. He says the idea that country folks don't get their fair share of resources is just wrong. He says, in fact, quote, in terms of resources, major federal programs disproportionately benefit rural areas, end of quote. He goes on to say that's because rural areas are older on the whole than urban areas, and so there's more people on Social Security and Medicare, and they're also lower income on the whole. So that means more people who need various programs like food stamps, housing assistance, etc. That's true. But he goes on to make the argument that the issue is that folks in the city, in the vibrant economic cities, are subsidizing these poor suckers in rural areas. Paul Krugman doesn't say Paul suckers, but that's the implication. Well, here's the deal. That is true. Wealthier states and wealthier municipalities put more in in terms of tax revenue because of higher property taxes and property tax rates and particularly because of higher incomes and the taxes that they generate. So wealthy areas put more in and need less coming back, whereas it's quite the opposite in poorer areas. That's true in a poor neighborhood within a city, just as much as it is in a, in a lower-income, lower-resource rural area. So yes, the wealthier areas, which are disproportionately urban, do subsidize the less wealthy areas, which are disproportionately rural. But that ain't the whole story, folks. A study done by a foundation looking at federal funding, this was back in I think the study wrapped up in 2011 or 2012, found that historically, in terms of economic and community development, more federal spending goes to cities than the countryside per capita. So let's say that again. In terms of the programs around developing businesses, developing prosperity, building the infrastructure that supports economic development and community development, the federal government gives more money per person to urban areas than to rural areas. More per person. That means dramatically more in total. This is the kind of spending that helps, if, if done right, this is the kind of spending that helps build long-term prosperity, that helps build a foundation for s- strong economies where people and communities can largely meet their own needs and not be dependent on either safety net programs or other forms of uh, government transfer payments. And yet... The rural areas that most need it are getting considerably less per capita than the urban areas. And here's the double whammy. Not only do they get less per capita, but the nearly all of the infrastructure, the services that are part and parcel of economic and community development cost more to build, cost more to deliver in the countryside than they do in cities. And that's because things are more spread out. The terrain can be much more difficult. You might have mountains or creeks in the way. Even providing services like support to aspiring entrepreneurs or non-traditional businesses is more expensive. Again, because of travel time, because of the need for, let's say, more of a foundation of education to get started. So all of that just costs more per person to deliver the same amount of goods and services, and we're getting less funding in rural per person. So the idea that this second critique, that rural areas aren't getting their fair share of resources, is unfounded, Mr. Krugman's wrong. They're right. They ain't getting their fair share. 
And then the final point he takes on is this notion that country people think they're always disrespected by city folks, but that's wrong too, apparently. Mr. Krugman's not the only one to say that. Scott Rada said that in his podcast, The Ethical Life, where they were talking about rural anger. Here's the direct quote from Mr. Krugman. Quote, what about rural perceptions of being disrespected? Well, many people have negative views about people with different lifestyles. That's human nature. There is, however, an unwritten rule in American politics that it's okay for politicians to seek rural votes by insulting big cities and their residents, but it would be unforgivable for urban politicians to return the favor, end of quote. Well, that's totally true that plenty of politicians courting the, the rural vote are happy to insult cities. That's standard fare. But the idea that it would be unforgivable for city folks to insult people in the country, or as they put it on the Ethical Life podcast, that it would be unthinkable that people in the city would denigrate people in the country? Whoa, what planet are these folks on? Where are they getting their information? The scorn, the disdain, the contempt, the ridicule of country people, of small town folks, of the occupations and the jobs they do, of the values that they have, the way they dress, the stuff we eat. My goodness, there's so much scorn, ridicule, and disdain heaped upon country people in their communities that you could write a book about it. Oh, wait, somebody did. My colleague, Erica Edelson. She was on the show a few weeks ago. Erica wrote the amazing book called Beyond Contempt. How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide. And in the first half or so of the book, Erica makes a powerful case chock full of examples of urban disdain, of elite disdain, of the disdain of the highly educated for those with less formal education. It's commonplace, folks. There may be pushback once in a while, but whether it's Don Lemon laughing uncontrollably on his show as one of his guests imitates and ridicules people in the countryside, or Bette Midler saying that West Virginians and the state of West Virginia was backwards and strung out, or Marcos Melitzas of the Daily Cost, one of the more prominent liberal news feeds, saying that we should be happy, we should be happy that coal miners are losing their health insurance. They got what they voted for. There is example after example of liberal scorn for conservatives of urban dismissal and disrespect towards people, communities in the countryside. And perhaps the most commonplace form of that disdain, of that disrespect, comes not exactly in the words themselves, although those are very commonly there, but in the fact that we as a society have moved away from thinking that People who work with their bodies, people who put their bodies on the line, whether they're farmers like me or folks in, working in coal mines or drilling for oil or riding the boats on the high seas, catching our fish or building our homes, our houses, fixing our cars and our plumbing. We've come to view those occupations as old school, as outdated. And the people who do them bear the consequences of whatever they have, disability, injury, 
poor wages, economic insecurity, because they haven't taken the steps that they should have taken, that they could take in the narrative, to better themselves, so-called. In other words, to get a college degree or more, and then to enter, I don't know, the field of finance, insurance, tech, all good stuff. But we disrespect country people who are disproportionately working class folks when we disrespect the work they do, yes, to keep food on their table, but also the work that makes our lives possible everywhere, that puts food on our tables, that creates the hardwood flooring and the tubifores, or the cinder blocks and the gravel that build our homes and roads, the work of fixing the stuff that's in our homes and office places that none of us know how to do, the work of moving it in trucks and trains from where it started out to where it ends up. So long as all of that is disrespected in terms of the wages paid and the prestige and status that it gets from the larger society, you don't need to directly insult people in West Virginia like Bette Midler did. You don't need to guffaw and laugh uncontrollably like Don Lemon did. There's just a general sense of dismissal and disregard that sinks in and fuels the anger and the frustration that Mr. Krugman has called rural rage. I know only one way to overcome that rage, and it's showing respect in words for sure, what we say and how we say it, but mostly in action, showing respect by working to make the lives of people who provide for us in the most fundamental ways better through our policies, the state and federal level, through our actions as neighbors and consumers. So that's our show for today. I'm Anthony Flacavento, your host of Two Worlds, One Country. We look forward to seeing you next week, and we look forward to our guest. I think you'll be really excited with some of the folks that were lining up to speak to you and to me about this question of how we got into the rural-urban divide and what we got to do to get out of it. Thanks so much, and see you next time. Undivided. Yeah.